0: We want to smash, crash, bash, mash, blast the system. We want to get it ice, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pump, rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear. We ain't scared. This is the vision we want. 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 Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, for the first segment, We'll look at the first hundred days of the Biden presidency in terms of media coverage. We'll discuss a new study that offers analysis titled Returning to Neoliberal Normalcy. We'll be speaking to two authors of the study, Nolan Higdon and Emile Marmel. Later in the program, we'll be joined by another scholar, Jen Lyons. She'll be talking about a recent study that looks at the other populist media, an exploratory study of the progressive left media
1: stay tuned
0: criminal political guys welcome to the project-censored show on Pacifica Radio I'm your host Mickey Huff in today's program in this segment we're going to discuss Returning to neoliberal normalcy, an analysis of legacy news media's coverage of the Biden presidency's first 100 days. This is a chapter for a forthcoming academic book, and it is authored by Dr. Nolan Higdon, Dr. Emil Marmel, along with me. After four years of dependence upon President Donald Trump to provide lucrative content, many in the news media are asking how will legacy media respond to the post-Trump era? Well, this exploratory study that we'll discuss today utilizes a critical framework of the legacy media's coverage of President Joe Biden's first 100 days to help answer that question. This study relies on the all-sides media chart to determine the ideological bias of each media outlet to investigate the ways in which they are reporting on the Biden presidency. The study concludes that the Democratic Party leaning media continue to fawn over and excuse the actions of the Biden administration while the Republican Party's leaning media seek to find an effective narrative to attack the Biden administration. In other words, this study explores the ongoing hyper partisan nature of corporate media, establishment media or legacy media here in the United States. Our guest today, Dr. Nolan Higdon, is author and university lecturer of history and media studies, his areas of concentration- include digital culture, news media history, and critical media literacy. Higdon is a founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas, and he sits on the boards of the Action Coalition for Media Education, ACME, and Northwest Alliance for Alternative Media Education. His most recent publication is The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news literacy education from the University of California Press in 2020. Nolan Higdon, welcome back to The Project Censored Show. Thank you for having me. Emil Marmel is PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education as an interdisciplinary scholar with experience in professional film and radio production. He has published on critical media literacy, Cuban society, the impact of neoliberalism on higher education, and repression of Latina Latinos in education. He's also written about standardized testing, labor struggles, and film. Emil Marmel, of course, as well as Nolan Higdon, also a contributor to Project Censored, They've both been guests on the program before. Emil Marmel, welcome back to the Project Censored Show.
1: Thank you for having me back on, Mickey.
0: This chapter that we've all participated in doing is part of a forthcoming book. So, Nolan Higdon, could you give us the general thesis of this article, Returning to Neoliberal Normalcy? you know in the pandemic era we saw from the trump presidency to the biden presidency a real tectonic shift in the tenor of the way that media is covering anything a lot of the legacy media corporate media will define that here momentarily but if in the united states when you look particularly at the cable outlets and the major media outlets we've kind of have cnn and msnbc and the new york times and washington post as part of a liberal legacy And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got things like Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, etc. Can you lay out the thesis of this study? Scholars
2: have long pointed out that every time a new administration comes into power, the media usually tries to ingratiate itself with the the new administration. This serves a lot of purposes. One, you can get access to to stories. But two, a lot of journalists make money off writing books. So if they can get access to the administration, they can write books. In that trend of history, the Obama administration and Trump administration were both kind of aberrations. The tight relationship between the media and the Obama administration never really dissolved. There wasn't a lot of media pressure on the Obama administration throughout his presidency. He largely kept this kind of comfortable relationship between journalists and his administration. Trump was obviously an aberration because he started a war with the press and had almost no honeymoon period. You know, we used to say the Clinton honeymoon period with the press was short. Trump's was non-existent. And so there was this contentious relationship between the Trump administration and the news media. And the promise of the news media was that, hey, look, when the Biden administration gets in here, we want to set a new tone. We want to return to this acceptable behavior between the press and the president. And so they decided to treat Biden as an extension of who they are in terms of their class and their interests. But what's really fascinating, that's how we frame the article, is that for as much as they supposedly hated Trump, secretly, they really loved Trump. Legacy media audiences were in decay throughout the Obama administration, and Trump gave them a massive bump. You know, we're talking about like half a million primetime viewers going to MSNBC in a short range of time. We're talking about quadrupling subscriptions to some things like the New York Times in short periods. But as soon as Trump went out of office, those audiences disappeared and they've largely gone to digital and non-traditional media. Legacy media is hanging on to the relationship with power while their audience is dwindling. So that kind of frames our, our analysis.
0: So, Emile Marmel, let's let's bring you in here. What would you like to add to that in terms of some of the definitions here, like legacy media? And throughout the study, there's this back and forth frame between Democratic Party leaning media versus Republican Party leaning media. And what we're getting at here is, of course, the hyperpartisan frames. And as Nolan and I have written before, those frames predate the Trump administration, of course, go back to the Clinton administration. That's when Fox News was born, Uh, 1996, the reelection of of Bill Clinton. Not only had we seen at that time already the nullification of the so-called Fairness Doctrine in 1987, Clinton ushered in a new Telecom Act in 1996 that further consolidated media ownership. And at that time, we really started to see even more hyper-partisanship in the press. And I recall in 2000, the contentious election of 2000 where we again had a loser winner uh, presidency in George W. Bush appointed by the Supreme Court. It was like overnight Fox News went from being 100% attack machine on Bill Clinton. Even the policies that clearly benefited the right in many ways during the Clinton presidency, Fox News could barely drag itself to acknowledge it. And overnight when Bush was coming into office, Fox was just fawning all over him. Even though we saw within the legacy media, a lot of the other corporate media outlets really struggled with the legitimacy of the George W. Bush presidency until 9-11. And then, of course, the whole script flipped and everybody got on board and Bush suddenly became legitimate and so on. So the war on terrorism, as it's called, really solidified some support in legacy media. But again, that also disintegrated as those wars dragged on. And we had the Obama presidency, the great hope and change presidency, the great historically recycled tropes that we have. This is, again, you know, right out of the Clinton playbook, right out of the Reagan playbook. We see it again with Trump, the morning in America, make America great again. None of, none of that's new. But Emil, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that kind of legacy media hyperpartisanship and how you see that playing into the study here.
1: As we discuss in the chapter, the legacy media is that that existed before digital times. And we also discuss how there's this separation between those that are Democratic-friendly or Democratic-leaning and those that are Republican-leaning. Democratic-leaning media are the New York Times, MSNBC, the Washington Post, a few others. And then on the Republican-leaning side, you've got Fox News, OAN, Breitbart, and a few others. And yeah, you can see more and more over the years how in order to capture a larger audience size, the media has become more and more partisan, cheerleading one team over another. So you've got Americans who are essentially confused as to what's actually going on because they're getting these highly skewed presentations on either side. And in addition, something that I would have liked to bring up in the chapter are a couple of studies that we just didn't have room to put in. But for instance, there's one that predates our timeframe of analysis, which looked at how the Jeffrey Epstein affair was covered by the media. And I'm just going to use our definitions of Democratic-leaning and Republican-leaning, but the Democratic-leaning media made it look like all the connections to Epstein were with the Republicans, and the Republican-leaning media made it look like all of epstein's connections were with the democrats uh and the other study that i thought was really interesting it looked at trump's slow descent from i believe it was a air force helicopter the democratic leading media went on and on and on about how this is showing that he's in bad shape and you know so on and so forth whereas when biden took spill after spill trying to get up into uh into i think it was air force one The Democratic-leaning media didn't touch it, and the Republican-leaning media had a field day with it about, like, this guy's falling apart. I want to just finish real quickly by saying something that I don't want to be misunderstood by those who are listening or reading our chapter is that when we talk about Democratic-leaning media or Republican-leaning media, we're not talking about a left or a right divide. That has to be very clear. We are talking about the way the media itself leans. It needs to be understood that the corporate media is ruling class media. They might represent different factions of the ruling class establishment, but they are nevertheless that. They do not represent the left or the right. For instance, the Democratic-leaning party media could be considered to represent neoliberal interests, and the Republican-leaning legacy media could be considered representing far-right, neo-fascistic, anti-immigrant, xenophobic, that kind of thing. So I just wanted to also make that abundantly clear.
0: Now, that's a very, very, very apt point to be making about legacy press and what we're referring to here. Nolan Higdon, the flip over into the Biden administration had some in the press talking about reality-grounded White House press briefings. <laughs> You'd almost have to be sleepwalking to not notice the sudden shift in the way that all of a sudden it's like, well, the adults are back in charge now and everything is going to be fine. And the whole narratives went from the death counts from COVID to the counts of how many people were vaccinated. Nolan Higdon, can you talk a little bit more about some of that?
2: I think it's worth reminding listeners that the whole point of a free press is they're supposed to have an adversarial relationship with those in power. Um, they're not supposed to be their friends. They're not supposed to love them. They're supposed to scare them, investigate them, and make their lives hell. And we saw just the opposite of that in the Biden administration. And you have to look no further than the inauguration. I mean, we talk about this in a piece, but some of the declarations the press were, were making during the inauguration were just insanity. Wolf Blitzer of CNN claimed that Biden had put his soul into his first address. I mean, like, how do you, how do you, what data do you have to show of his soul? Meanwhile, Rachel Maddow was talking about how she needed a box of Kleenex because they were crying with joy after the inauguration. Members of the press, like Chuck Todd, were saying he is the better angels president. Remember, he hadn't completed a day yet in office and he's declaring (laughs) him the better angels president. So it was that level of just insanity. We went from there into the press briefings where they love asking the administration whether or not they're going to lie, whether or not they're going to tell the truth, the whole purpose of a White House, the White House uh, communication team is to spin stories favorable to the White House. They always lie and misrepresent Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. Every president, this is their job. And here the press is just taking this stuff hook, line, and sinker. Like, well, finally, we're going to get back to facts and truth. By going through the chief propagandist,
0: I'd like to remind listeners you're tuned to The Project Censored Show. I'm the host, Mickey Huff. We are speaking now with Emil Marmel and Nolan Higdon. Recently, we co-authored a study on legacy media coverage of the shift from the Trump to the Biden presidency in the first 100 days. We'll continue discussing that analysis after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of today's program, we're speaking with media scholars Nolan Higdon and Emil Marmel. We recently co-authored a study... That will be out in a book later this year at Rutledge on a return to neoliberal normalcy and the coverage of the legacy media, corporate media, and establishment press in the United States and their coverage of the presidential election and the shift into power and particularly the coverage of the first 100 days. Nolan Higdon, just before the break, you talked to us about the first day, the drastic shift even just in the first day and some of this kind of obvious biased coverage. We've got 99 more to go if we're going to look at the first 100 days, but one of the interesting features. Well, I'm sure our listeners remember that the Washington Post had a running tally of falsehoods from the Trump presidency where they were over 20-some thousand. It was actually like a daily thing. The Washington Post fact-checker team it was actually over 30,000. They had 30,573 untruths tallied during the Trump presidency, averaging about 21 erroneous claims per day. Well, after the first hundred days of the Biden administration... The editor and chief writer around this whole fact check, Glenn Kessler, basically said that the team would continue to fact check President Biden, quote, rigorously, but would no longer maintain a database that started under former President Trump. So in other words, this kind of goes to what the both of you were saying. Emile Marmel, you're talking about the establishment bias in the press and the power and the class nature. And Nolan Higdon, you were remarking on almost the cartoonish element of the bias in the shift. The Post said that while they would remain ever vigilant, it wouldn't be necessary to track the factual record of a president's statements. Nolan?
2: In some ways, as I mentioned earlier, the Obama administration had cultivated a mostly like friendly relationship with the press. And that was problematic. Just so it was kind of problematic that Trump and the press had a you know relationship, which was basically uh, them insulting Trump's Twitter feed. But the one good thing about their relationship was that the press really wanted to be hard on President Trump. And that's the good thing. And that should continue during the Biden administration. Unfortunately, the Democratic-leaning press has totally given up on that with Biden, as evidenced by the, the Washington Post example. What I find kind of interesting, though, is this is the first time in at least my lifetime where I've seen the Republican Party-leaning media really struggling to come up with a narrative. You know, my whole life, they've been really good at attacking the Clintons and and Obama and and this whole thing, and they've been largely successful. They really seem kind of lost in the post-Trump era of how to attack Biden. There's like this Dr. Seuss thing, and they're going after critical race theory, and these things are kind of working on the margins. But it's not that like powerful message. Remember, they tried, they tried to paint him as a socialist for a while there. And anybody who was a socialist was like, we wish. So the interesting thing, I think, on, on the right has been watching Republican-leaning media struggle to figure out how to respond to the Biden administration, while Democratic-leaning media clearly is just there to excuse and aid in any way they can the Biden administration.
0: So, Emil Marmel, one of the things that you pick up in the analysis and in, in the study here in this forthcoming book from Rutledge, we saw this during the Obama years, during the market crash. There were magazines, you know, news weeklies in the U.S. that showed Obama as an FDR, a Franklin Roosevelt character. But we see the same kind of thing with Joe Biden. What Nolan Higdon just said about the idea that Republicans are trying to brand him as socialist and Kamala Harris is some radical leftist. But there's been this frame that somehow Biden is this FDR type. Even though a lot of the things haven't really changed from Trump, we remember that Biden was promising, you know, multi-thousand dollar checks and promising to end the kids in cages at the border. The press has really let a lot of that stuff aside, while simultaneously in the first hundred days in particular, which historically goes back to the Roosevelt administration— that's the first major time in U.S. history where there was a measurement of those first 100 days during the Great Depression. And it's kind of just stuck as, as a gimmicky brand to, to, to judge what's happening in the presidency. But at least in this case, we have an ongoing pandemic. Emil, what about Biden as FDR reincarnated?
1: I'll answer that question in a moment. But first, I want to touch up on a couple of things that the two of you have said. First of all, about ceasing of coverage of any lies Biden might tell there's also just a ceasing of coverage in general. The media covered all of Trump's press briefings. And since Biden has come to power, they don't even cover the press briefings anymore. And it just shows you how the media is thinking, well, he Biden isn't as exciting, does not going to give us the kind of rhetoric that Trump is going to give us. So they largely stopped covering his press briefings where they covered all of Trump's. And in terms of the adults being in charge again, I really want to mention this quote because I think it really covers the way that a lot of liberals think about this. Amy Siskind wrote, quote, it's "So different having military action under Biden. No middle school level threats on Twitter trust Biden and his team's competence. It's as if once the rhetoric has changed, everything's okay. And then in terms of the press briefings, you know Rachel Maddow of MSNBC has provided uncritical praise for the job performance of Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, telling her, I believe you're telling the truth. It would be difficult to imagine Maddow asking Psaki to explain why in 2017, while working as a political commentator for CNN, she wrote the following tweet in protest of Trump's bombing of Syria, quote, also, what is the legal authority for strikes? Assad is a brutal dictator, but Syria is a sovereign country. So to go back to what you asked me initially about the media portraying Biden as the new FDR, it's kind of mind-boggling and it almost relies upon the public to not have any background in history. I mentioned this chapter to a Canadian friend of mine and even they were like, what? Like they couldn't believe that that was the framing that they were doing. And, you know, I could give you a few headlines if that's helpful, but the New York Times ran articles, quote, how FDR's air is changing the country. And Joe Biden is electrifying America like FDR. The Washington Post ran one. We need the government. Biden's $1.9 trillion relief plan reflects seismic shifts in U.S. politics. Uh, Morning Joe ran segments titled, Biden's second only to FDR in number of executive orders in first hundred days, or how a president's first hundred days stretches back to FDR. But the truth about Biden is that he has a history of being a neoliberal conservative politician who has supported legislation to weaken social safety nets and increasing poverty. He's advocating for the cutting of social security, Medicare, Medicaid, federal retirement funds, and food stamps. He voted to support NAFTA, which costs tons of jobs and weakened labor unions. He increased the prison population. He voted to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act. His coziness with and contributions from the credit card and baking industry Earned him the monikers the senator from MBNA and senator credit card. So, sure, maybe we can discount his past. Maybe he's changed. Maybe things are different now. But that simply isn't th- the case. You know, his policies since becoming president are a continuation of the person he has always been. He backed until December 2020 a compromise a relief che- check of only $600. It was only because of pressure from Trump and House Democrats that he bumped it up to $1,400. And this is nothing compared to what some people in other countries are getting. I mean, I live in Canada. I'm a U.S. citizen. I received $2,000 a month for several months. He dropped the raising of the federal minimum wage to $15. that has gone now. His tax increases don't compare at all to FDR. He's talking about increasing the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28%. And the top tax bracket for those making over 400000 from 37% to 39.6%. Well, the problem is that his proposed tax increases, for instance, for the corporate tax rate, does not even bring it to the Obama-era level of 35%. And his increase to the top tax bracket is equivalent to what prevailed under George W. Bush, a Republican, hardline conservative president. And a couple of final things I want to mention. His infrastructure plan was initially supposed to be $2.2 trillion. He's compromised, which he loves to do, to just 1.2 trillion. He's gutted the major environmental provisions and protections out of it, and even more worryingly, the bipartisan Senate infrastructure plan is going to fund new infrastructure by selling old infrastructure at fire sale prices to fund new infrastructure. So it's just a Trojan horse for privatization. So I don't see how we can talk about. Biden as being the new FDR.
0: I've taken, of course, to calling the current administration president, not Trump, and vice president, not Pence, because as Nolan and I, and, and in fact, you, Emil, as well, we, we co-authored a, a piece or two during the election season, seemingly unending. Looking at that, just the zeal of whatever empty suit person that would be not President Trump was somehow, as you say, elevated to some kind of great heroic status like an FDR, et cetera. And one of my favorite quotes, of course, from Joe Biden during that campaign season was, quote, nothing would fundamentally change under his presidency. And of course, the legacy press seems to have wanted to forget about some of that. Maybe what, what they thought was nothing would change in their coverage other than their same hyper-partisan angle and how they would change their respective leaning penner Nolan Higdon. As an historian, I wanted to bring you back in here. You certainly have a couple of other things to offer as far as with the way the legacy press is looking at Biden.
2: They've really tried to paint him as like this transformative figure. I think this goes back to what Emil was talking about, about how we're not talking about liberals and conservatives or left versus right. We're talking about Democrats versus Republicans, the ruling class's parties. In a way, a lot of what Trump did was not really different than what the ruling class has done for a long time. Unfortunately for, for the ruling class, he said the quiet part out loud. We're just going to bomb countries because we want to take resources. You know, you all of you in legacy media are liars. He really kind of told the, the, the way it works. That's why they really hated him, because he caused this instability by exposing the realities of the ruling class. So in my estimation, at least it looks like the Biden administration, the media is trying to, to quell dissent, whether it be the Bernie left, Occupy left dissent or the, the Tea Party right Trumpers, by saying, look, here's Biden, this transformative figure, doing these bipartisan bills, he's spending big money, he's bringing the country back. And as Emil points out, the rhetoric on that, or the reporting on that, is, is just so bankrupt. That's not the reality of what's happening here. There's been some reports out that they need to be substantiated in terms of numbers, but this is the biggest upward transfer of wealth in, in U.S. history that's happening right now. With FDR, it was the exact opposite. FDR was transferring the wealth from the top down to the bottom. Um, people forget that we now look back on FDR sort of fondly in terms of how we measure presidents. But he was hated. All the papers hated him. Um, the ruling class hated him. And, and FDR thought, I'll create one party, which is everybody, and then the other party will be the Republicans, which will be the wealthy class. What he never anticipated was what we're living in now, where the Republican Party are the financial elites. And the Democratic Party are the educated elites and everybody else kind of fights among themselves with MAGA and vote blue no matter who and all that vapid stuff. That's where we've ended up. And that's why Biden really doesn't represent that tradition of of FDR.
0: Well, certainly a United States of distraction and the media has certainly cheerlead that along the way in baiting and switching what they want folks to focus on rather than many of the substantive things. That you have just been talking about, and the matter of fact records of people like Joe Biden, which are really important to remember. And I suppose this is maybe idealistic, but the notion that the free press tell the public what's actually happening in order to have a functional self governing society, we certainly don't see that happening much in the legacy press. And the last thing I wanted to hit upon with both of you, Nolan Higdon and Emil Marmel, the legacy media coverage of Biden's first hundred days research center did a focus on this versus the first 100 days of the trump administration just the coverage of the presidency itself literally shifted for the first couple of months of biden's term two-thirds of legacy media reporting focused on policy agendas whereas for trump during the same period only a quarter focused on policy flipping that around About three quarters of the legacy media coverage during Trump's early days looked at his character, his leadership skills, etc. So the focus on the coverage of the presidency itself changed from character to policy. And so Emil Marmel, I was curious if you wanted to chime in.
1: I could talk about, for instance, the way they have reported on foreign policy. When it was convenient, the Democratic-leaning media criticized Trump were talking about withdrawing troops. But then when Biden initially was talking about removing troops, they were fully backing him on that. There has been, as of very recently, a bit of pushback from the Democratic leaning legacy media, because of course, corporate media in general always gets behind war. But the fact remains that they believe Biden when he says that he is going to remove the troops. I mean, this is taken as an absolute truth, where that's not exactly the case. And this is the part that doesn't get reported on critically. There's evidence that, you know, there's going to be about a thousand troops that are never going to leave. We're going to keep fixing and fueling and getting those black ho- helicopters up in the air. And Biden has recently said that they have a plan for over the horizon airstrikes in Afghanistan. So we're going to keep, you know, maybe not from Bagram Air Force Base, But we're going to keep putting those drones in there. We're going to keep manned, run manned aircraft. We're going to continue to bomb that country. So we are not leaving. And in terms of other countries, and I don't think this is being reported on as critically under Biden as as it was under Trump, but you've got Yemen. Biden has said that he's pulling away from that. Well, no, that's not true. We're continuing to fund and provide support to Saudi Arabia to continue bombing Yemen. The United States continues under Biden to sanction Venezuela, which the United States has already caused over 100,000 deaths there. And somewhere in the world that matters to me, because I have family there, Cuba. Biden's administration has under review their policies towards Cuba, which hasn't changed since the Trump administration. It's so petty. Even in the last few days, the United States denied visas to the Cuban soccer team. Even though the media is saying things have changed, yeah, maybe the rhetoric has changed, but the actual policies remain exactly the same.
0: You're listening to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. After this brief musical break, we will continue our program. Stay with us. Nolan Higdon, let's bring it back to you to round out the conversation, the kind of coverage we see in the partisan legacy media, all Trump, all the time. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that the corporate press in particular, it's almost as if they're grasping at straws as Trump now goes back on the campaign trail, decrying his deplatforming and so forth. Again, focus on the personality, not so much the policy. And even when the legacy press were critical of Trump's policies, it was always grounded somehow in his mendacity, his immorality, etc.
2: There was so much about Trump in terms of policy or legitimate conflicts of interest that they could have called out. I mean, like the emoluments clause, you could look at some of his proposals for what he wanted to do in, in foreign policy. Those are like legitimate areas that that to critique Trump and said they went after this like Russiagate nonsense and his Twitter feed and all that kind of stuff. Ironically, you hear a lot of rhetoric from Biden and and Harris that you could, the media could harp on the same way they did with Trump. I mean, Harris effectively told immigrants uh, leaving Central and South America, coming to the United States, don't come here, don't come. Or remember the leaked audio tape of Biden talking to the NAACP where he effectively said that the problem with race relations in America right now was that brown and black people aren't getting along and, quote, you people need to learn to get along. (laughs) Again, when Trump said stuff like that, you know, rightly was was lampooned and attacked 24 hours a day. Biden just gets away with this stuff. And there was a lot of criticisms of the Trump administration for their faux appeals to race. I'm going to get more black jobs for anybody than ever. And you'd make all these empty promises you would never deliver onto the black community. Well, you could say the same thing about the Biden administration. I mean, remember on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd, he was supposed to pass the police reform bill. Remember, the $2,000 check was disproportionately going to go to, to communities of color, and he cut that funding. The same sort of critiques they made about Trump, they could be making about Biden and Harris, but but they choose not to. I think that's really revealing. Go ahead, Emile Marmel.
1: I just want to touch on something Nolan mentioned, which is immigration policy. Going back again to, like, the rhetoric changing and now everything's okay. The policy at the border, the detentions, the overcrowding, the children, you know, sleeping under aluminum foil on concrete floors and cages, none of that has changed. The rhetoric has changed. You don't have a president who's saying vile, atrocious, dehumanizing, racist, xenophobic things about immigrants and Latinos. But the fact that the rhetoric has changed has quieted down the critique. But under Biden, it's gone largely under the radar, and that's highly problematic.
0: The other thing that comes to mind here was the coverage of COVID. And again, I mentioned earlier under Trump, it was the death count. Under Biden, it's the vaccine count. Again, let's not forget that the vaccines were being developed all during the Trump presidency. The other thing is, is that when Trump initially said that there should be an investigation about the potential lab leak theory, it was lampooned as racist, absurd conspiracy talk. And now Biden has set a 90-day intelligence report post-haste to get to the bottom of the potential legitimacy of something. And the corporate press now all of a sudden has been like, well, maybe we really blew it on that front. Again, un- under Trump, it was just, this is nonsense from this blabbermouth, and now it's, well, wait a minute, maybe we didn't do our due diligence. That doesn't say anything about the efficacy of a lab leak theory. That's not where we're going with this. What we're talking about is the legacy media shifting, the bias, the rhetoric, and so on. And again, that's something that we discuss here in the article. So in conclusion for our conversation here today, I think the main warning in the analysis that we're putting forward is actually, Nolan did not much different than where we ended in the United States, a distraction. The legacy media tend to provide viewers and listeners with a highly skewed, one-sided kind of coverage that serves to satisfy and confirm pre-existing worldviews and biases. Audiences are treated to unrealistic, incomplete, or inaccurate depictions of what's going on in the world in which their side, whether it's Republican or Democratic, are heroes or arch-villains in that particular story. The thing here that we're possibly looking past or missing is that one of the dangers of that kind of coverage is maybe we will have a continuation of a lot of these policies like you are just discussing, but if you put a happy face on it, people seem to look the other way and everybody's going back to their lattes and the reopening. In other words, where did that feet to the fire crowd go in the Democratic Party? Well, we'll just get Biden in first and then we'll deal with it from there. You know, the danger here of past is prologue is we should be mindful of all the warning signs of this fascistic type of culture that's really taken grip, this corporatist culture that's really taken hold in the United States such that it becomes the water the fish swim in that they don't tend to notice anymore. Maybe it can happen here and it is happening here. Nolan Higdon, could you briefly comment for concluding remarks about why we really need to address these problems in the legacy press and champion true investigative reporting?
2: It's really important for voters to get a different frame. I mean, every time I hear someone say the ignorant comments of, you know, you have to vote for the lesser of two evils, I feel like banging my head against the desk. Maybe once in your lifetime, you vote for the lesser of two evils. But if you do it consistently, say since, I don't know, 1992, every time you're going for the lesser of two evils, you're allowing the country to move further and further right to the point where Joe Biden was like one of the the most right side of the spectrum of the Democratic Party. Now he is the president. Or conversely, something I always like to point out Ronald Reagan was supposedly the nutcase right winger in the 1980s. He would barely be a Democrat today. The guy passed an assault weapons ban, he quadrupled the deficit. This was a guy that, that supported a legal path to abortion when governor. These are things you can never do as a Republican today, and, and barely do as a Democrat. So I think this this lesser of two evils uh, plan. The next time someone says things like "vote blue, no matter who," or "lesser of two evils," they're really giving the indication that they have no interest in holding the Democratic Party accountable. Because the way you hold the Democratic Party accountable is forcing them to lose consistently to the point that they are forced to adopt progressive
1: policies to survive.
0: So, Emil Marmel, what do you have to add here to the concluding remarks?
1: Well, whether you vote for the lesser evil or the evil, the trajectory of the country remains the same. Wealth and income inequality continue to rise. The infrastructure is crumbling. There's no universal health care like the rest of the rich countries in the world. Police violence continues. Ecological collapse is continuing. The trajectory of the country remains the same. But the people think that things are fundamentally different with each consecutive administration. People don't have an accurate assessment of what's actually going on, and they can't talk to each other on equal footing because they're yelling at each other, supposed facts, they think they're facts, that there's just no ability to have a public discourse that makes any sense anymore. So I feel that it's incumbent upon the media to provide us with coverage that holds both parties' feet to the fire, that reveals the corruption in the highest places, that shows the public how both parties are fundamentally crushing their quality of life. But I don't think we can expect that from the corporate media. So what I do is I read the alternative press. I read alternative media because that's the one place where you're going to get journalists and organizations that provide the public with context and holistic analyses under which you can truly understand the way the United States government is working. And so that's what I recommend to our viewers, is really engage with alternative press as much as possible.
0: Well, Emile Marmel, Nolan Higdon, as we conclude in the analysis of the legacy press coverage of the shift into the Biden administration, we obviously need more than what the legacy media provide. And we should resist such a return to neoliberal normalcy. We really need, Emil Marmel, as you said, a truly independent press reporting in the public interest and to hold those in power to account. And we, we really need nothing short of a media revolution. And of course, people like Bob McChesney and others have, have been saying that for years. Um, I've been in conversation with Nolan Higdon and Emil Marmel here. We recently did an analysis and a study of the chapter of a forthcoming for Rutledge called Returning to Neoliberal Normalcy Analysis of Legacy News Media Coverage of the Biden Presidency's First 100 Days. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on the Project Censored show today to discuss this important analysis of corporate establishment and legacy media. We'll return to this conversation here in the future and perhaps we'll highlight some more of the independent press outlets and we'll be discussing more of the types of stories that we started to unpack today and we'll have a continuation of it through the Biden presidency. Emil Marmel, Nolan Higdon, thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Up next on the Project Censored show, we're going to talk about a study that looks at the other populist media, progressive left media. We'll be joined by an author of a recent study, Jen Lyons. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this section of the program, we're going to turn to another future publication based on a study done by Nolan Higdon, our previous guest, and also our guest right now, Jen Lyons. They did a study for a communications journal called The Other Populist Media, an exploratory study of Prague left media. They write in the abstract that the growing influence of the progressive left media ecosystem has drawn little attention from scholars. This exploratory study seeks to bring more attention to this space through a qualitative analysis of some of the most popular media programming. And this qualitative study performed two rounds of research that looks at programming from June of 2019 to January of 2021. And the data reveals that progressive left media are a diverse and young group of folks whose messaging critiques the elite class's influence on politics, media, and voters' sense of identity. Progressive left media figures believe they are creating a paradigm shift that seeks to counter elite messaging. The study includes a discussion of the findings, and Jen Lyons joins us today to talk about those. Jen Lyons is an instructor of history at Diablo Valley College in the San Francisco Bay Area, earned her graduate degree in history from the University of Nevada, Reno. Her research primarily focuses on the United States in the 20th and 21st centuries, including how various modes of communication have impacted American social, economic, and political habits. She has presented at numerous academic conferences, and I have actually co-published with Jen Lyons as well, and she contributed to the next Project Censored book's junk food news chapter. Jen Lyons, welcome to the Project Censored show.
3: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: It's great to have you on with us, and having written a few things with you now, it's great to have you on the Project Censored show as a guest to talk about a study that you just completed with Nolan. Could you tell us a little bit about this study and where it's going to be published? Jen Lyons.
3: Nolan and I recently finished and presented on um, our article, The Other Populous Media, An Exploratory Study of Progressive Left Media. This is a kind of a growing set of mass media. It's a media system that has drawn like really little attention from scholars in the recent couple years, but it is growing. It has a large influence among its listeners. So we went ahead and composed this exploratory study that seeks to bring more attention to this space. So, just before I jump into our findings, we define the prog left media as an emerging set of personalities and programs that present themselves as a populist alternative to establishment liberal political discourse. And the Prog Left Media podcasts that we chose to look at and examine both pretty sizable audiences and followings that are larger than legacy media in some cases. And in uh, Nolan and, and my research, we went through some of the most prominent progressive left media podcasts, including Rising, Useful Idiots, and The Jimmy Dore Show. And we decided to do this research because... It's just so under-evaluated at this point. Right now, we are under review for the journalism and mass communication quarterly. A lot of our colleagues were really excited to hear what we had to say about it because it is such an underexplored media ecosystem.
0: This space that we're talking about, Nolan also just finished another book on podcasting with Nick Bayham, and the amount of active podcasts has gone from half a million to 750,000 you all write in your article and you say that over half of Americans have listened to a podcast and over a third of Americans tune in regularly. That's according to Pew Research Center. So this is a huge growing body that has not just risen to rival legacy media, cable media, mm-hmm. the print press and so on. But in some cases, these, some of these shows are attracting larger audiences even than the cable news channels, which of course legacy media is very worried about. That's why there's a lot of movements in legacy media to delegitimize many of these kind of sources. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your definition of populist media in this regard, and maybe talk to us a little bit about what your findings were. Because I think the findings were pretty interesting, that your survey of prog-left programs revealed that the host recognized a link between cultural hegemony and economic policy. And that kind of analysis is something that's often very lacking in the corporate press. So,
3: I'd say the four major conclusions we found were that these kind of podcasts and other forms of mass communication regarding progressive left, they resulted in critiquing neoliberalism, critiquing both political parties, which was a big discussion um, between Nolan and I and our colleagues, rejecting elite culture and building class solidarity. One of the things that you mentioned, Mickey, is that this is such a large and growing platform. I'm pretty sure it was the Jimmy Dore show that we analyzed. It has over a million viewers per show. And I think that a lot of legacy media are critiquing these forms of communication. One of their main arguments is that these prog-left platforms are more conservative than other liberal platforms, which is just silly because one of our main findings is that these platforms literally critique both political parties. I mean, no one is really safe. And I think that's one of the big successes of this platform in comparison to CNN or Fox News or other news networks. These forms of media are critiquing both sides, playing devil's advocate on both the liberal and conservative viewpoint that are talked about.
0: In that regard, it almost sounds like you're talking about journalism rather than the hyper partisanship that we see in legacy press. I Granted, many of these outlets are accused of being biased. And in fact, many of them mm-hmm. do have a particular bias. And here we are talking about left progressive media. They're announcing, in fact, what their ideologies and their ideas and their identities might be in the political fear, but Mm -hmm. that they are also, in your findings, many of these programs, these programs are not afraid to go after the sacred cows right or left. So rejecting neoliberalism is one of the features that you've noticed in a lot of these programs. And you also talk about how they reject political parties more so. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about some of these other findings?
3: Yeah. And just to kind of connect to what you were just discussing, one of the first things I learned when I was in grad school is that no matter what your reading or, you know, whoever, whoever wrote something, it's always going to be biased. So for them to just say, you know, oh, this is totally biased. You know, the prog left media is totally biased. Of course it is. Everyone has their own viewpoint. Everyone has their own personal history that makes them think the way that they do. So it's just silly that that is the big thing that corporate media is accusing this new platform of. Everyone has their own opinion. So I just think that's totally silly. But going back to critiquing neoliberalism and critiquing both political parties, also just the rejection of elite culture and that building of class solidarity that we discovered through our research, these are common themes.
0: So among these programs, we're seeing an actual rejection of elite culture, a real rejection of the parties. Versus legacy media, for example, you know, you go to CNN, you go to MSNBC, the New York Times, their portrayal of Trump was consistently designed to garner ratings, and they tended to show him as authoritarian. I'm not saying he wasn't, but they tended to focus a lot on his character and the insane things that he would do and say rather than the policy. And you have a great quote in here from the Katie Halper show. And Katie Halper, in addition to having her own show, she also works with Matt Taibbi at Useful Idiots. She said, quote, we can't just read half the news in our analysis of the Trump administration. Some of us have been arguing throughout that the amazing thing was, in a sense, how weak he turned out to be. And Halper argued that that's less of, of an example of fascism. But, and again, we can argue these things one way or the other. But the point is, is that you just don't hear this kind of analysis in the legacy press, the more Democratic Party leaning press just like you're not going to hear really hard-hitting investigative reports about the Biden administration all the time coming out of Fox News, right? It's the low fruit. It's Joe trips going up the stairs and Kamala's poll ratings are into the basement. So what you discovered, I think, in a lot of this prog left media, and a lot of this new platforms and podcasting is that they have a fresh take on this versus the establishment press. So in addition to the rejection of the two parties as well, I think one of the things that you also find is that they have actual debates and discussions around issues like critical race theory, for example. They're not cartoonish exposés distorting what it is. They actually are having scholars come on and talk about what it is and isn't and what some valid criticisms are versus you know, the very ideologically charged and sensationalist ones that aren't grounded in fact. Jen Lyons, can you talk a little bit about some of those findings?
3: Yes, and I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, Mickey. I think that's what's so great about this emerging media ecosystem, that it's promoting the bridging of the right and the left. So rather than tearing conservative and liberals further apart, they're trying to show different sides to the story rather than what you were saying, you know, with Fox News and CNN and MSNBC, where they're just showing certain parts of the low hanging fruit, it creates this sense of class solidarity among listeners where they're able to agree and disagree respectively, rather than just shift to one side because Trump or Biden said to do so. And I think that's what is freaking out the legacy media is that this is bridging the gap rather than tearing those apart. And it's allowing Um, Americans and listeners alike to just think freely for themselves rather than I need to agree with this because that is what the liberals do. And I need to disagree with this because the conservatives say to do so. And I think that is why this is such a growing popular platform that it allows us to think freely rather than, you know, you have to agree with what, you know, what Tucker Carlson has to say today.
0: And Jen Lyons, the other thing that I want to point out too is that you and Nolan Higdon are millennial scholars. So you come from a a younger generation of people that didn't grow up with legacy media the same way Mm -hmm. that I did as Gen X or (laughs) the generation even before me. It created what became the legacy media. And so I think it's a really fresh perspective that you present in your article and you talk about the media landscape that you have been growing up in. So the thing I wanted to wrap up with here, maybe you can talk a little bit about the pro and the con of this as part of the study and maybe some things that you continue to want to look at that you didn't get in, right? that's the problem with studies as they end and they're ongoing, (laughs) right? They're, they're, they're snapshots. They're not supposed to be definitive. They're snapshots. Mm -hmm. uh, And Mm -hmm. someone wants to pick up the ball and run with it and continue. Um, Part of this is of course, you know, you're going to left prog media, So you kind of know what you might be getting, but many might be surprised that there's actually some pretty vigorous debate in that press or in that media. But then also there are so many different places to go and find them that younger people just have far more options. So can you talk a little bit about the plus and minus of the too many options angle?
3: That is one of the great things about podcasts and where media is moving towards. There are so many options and there are so many different voices to listen to, which I think is definitely a positive, but then you can find yourself getting lost in this as well. There's so many options and you're only listening to one or two. Look at what is being left out. So I think that's a big negative, what media is turning into. Another thing that's tough is that when we did this research, these were podcasts that were sponsored by The Rolling Stone and Rising, and those are jumping ship to have their own individual shows and moving towards the subscriber model, which creates this class divide. They're looking to create this class solidarity and bridge the right and the left. And when they move to the subscriber model, it makes it more difficult for us as listeners to seek out and find the information that we value and that we really strive to listen to.
0: Well, Jen Lyons, I think the study is very fascinating. It should be out later this fall. The Other Populist Media, an exploratory study of Prague Left Media, and I know that there are some other ongoing areas that you're both researching, Jen Lyons, your article with Nolan Higdon. So we'll definitely have you back on the program to talk about some of those updates, and we'll surely have you on later in the fall to talk about your findings from the latest junk food news chapter that's forthcoming from Project Censor's State of the Free Press 2022. So, Jen Lyons, thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored Show today.
3: Thanks,
0: Mickey. Thank you. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, Mickey Huff, and Peter Phillips. I am the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States, from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work and to find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram before we're deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored Show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work. Last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
1: and the All the prisons,
0: capacity the times master thief, a masterpiece. Open your eyes and be what's happening. Times reach potential At the table, then you probably